This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gear and status. Soviet cartography. Great openings of film history. And the anti-Masonic party. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is, it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's what a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone's stacks a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! The clatter of premier crystal cave orthogonal dice, the crunch of... Iron Man brand Doritos and the sight of the rare Japanese vinyl pressing of Frampton Comes Alive <laughs> tell us we've entered a exalted brand identified segment of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we are defined not by the stats on our character sheet. No, we are defined by the bling our characters wear. Robin, what are we going to talk about in terms of the armor, the equipment, the shopping half of F20 games? What's the... What's the game here we're going to talk about uh how you can reflect social status and have your gear list too at the same time uh but in order to get there i'm going to go the far away route and begin with a bit of a, a preamble to paint a word and uh time and even temperature picture for you the listener for uh although you are listening to this, this is this is canadian literature because you've added temperature to it exactly uh, and the temperature is not the temperature you would, you would associate with my uh, northern landscape because uh, for you, the listener, Gen Con is, is but a faded memory. But for us, it is Gen Con Eve. And it's not, and it's not punter Gen Con Eve, uh, which would be Wednesday, the day before Thursday when the show formally enters. But it's uh, tabletop pro slash rapscallion uh, Gen Con Eve because for us, the show begins on Wednesday night with the Dinah Jones Awards. Uh, which by the time you 
hear this will have been awarded, but we don't know who's who's going to get the Dino Jones award. Could be time. anybody. Could except, be anybody. I mean, anybody of the nominees. It probably couldn't be any anybody. Right. I, yeah. I think. You know, yeah, probably uh, Angela Merkel, probably not going to win. Not going to win. Not tipped to win by key pundits. Right. But here in in my apartment, I've had to turn off all of the air conditioning at the behest of our crack audio editor, uh, Rob Borges, who insists that all ACs and fans and windows be closed. Therefore, uh, and it's quite often the case, there's a heat wave right uh, on Gen Con packing day. So I'm going to throw caution to the winds, Ken. Caution. Caution. Thrown to the winds? To the winds it goes. Because realistically, I've got some Pelgrane blog posts written today, but after this podcast, this is the last useful thing that I'm going to do today. So I'm going to crack open a lovely beer. Ooh. There you go. There's the sound of it cracking open. Mm-hmm. Now, just because I'm throwing caution in the winds doesn't mean I'm going to drink beer out of the can. One doesn't do that. One puts it in a, a glass like any civilized person. One can drink beer out of a can, by the way. One can, but one should not if one wants to enjoy your lovely beer. So what I'm pouring here is a Broadhead Grindstone Amber Ale, a beer I've not tasted before. This is from uh, a brewery in Ottawa, Ontario. Speaking of uh, my national birth birthright, it is from the BroadheadBeerCompany.com. And uh, so you, the listener, as I continue to uh, talk throughout this podcast, can judge how much caution I've thrown to the winds. Judge it in milliliters. Exactly so. Because it's Canadian beer. Mmm, mmm, fine caramel notes. So just as a craft beer is uh, sometimes regarded as a marker of status, and your knowledge of craft beer in some circles can be a marker of status, if you are an adventurer in a fantasy world, uh, you might want to take a note from uh, the history of armor and arms in our real world and note just how much status is attached to the items of armor and weaponry that you might see in a museum. Now, granted, the things that you tend to see in a museum are museum pieces. You often see the most elaborate, ornate things. And some of these uh, pieces of armor, particularly ones that were used at jousting tournaments, were mostly for ceremonial value. That They're not the sort of thing that you, as a dedicated murder hobo, would take down into the depths with you uh, in pursuit of orcs and all of that money that they're rudely hanging on to that really ought to be yours. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, there's a lot that you are saying culturally about yourself and about yourself within a culture according to the sorts of ornament that your uh, armor contains. So I thought that we would explore uh, that idea in a way that your gear is not just a, a functional thing, but as any expensive item is in real life, it also broadcasts uh, something about your wealth and something about your status, and in some cases, even the permission that you have to uh, carry and wield certain weapons. So, for example, of course, in Japanese samurai culture, not just anybody could wander around uh, with a katana that they could use for lopping people's heads off. There was a, a series of strict rules determining whose heads could and couldn't be lopped off. So you had to be a samurai to carry uh, what we colloquially call a, a samurai sword. And uh, Ken, are there other instances in history that we can draw from as we try to make uh, gear say something about not just your role in uh, killing monsters, but your role in society? Well, I mean, one of the things that is true, especially in medieval armies, which are the ones that your your sort of uh, F-20 universes are usually modeling, is that carrying a polearm uh, makes you a peasant, 
Right. Uh, because the pole arms all come from agricultural tools, bills and uh, long axes and things like that, because you're supposed to use uh, your big axe on a, on a pole for lopping off tree branches or doing other agricultural tasks. Uh, bill hooks are for pulling hay down out of the hay rick. And the fact that you can also pull an armored guy off his horse or whack a guy at great distance with your halberd, it doesn't change the fact that if you're a real noble, you carry a sword. And if you're carrying a pole arm, you're there to make the noble look good and keep him alive. And, and hence the term spear carrier. Hence the term spear carrier. Uh, in more uh, professional armies, like the Roman army, everyone carried everything. So whether you were, you know, noble birth or plebeian birth, everyone carries their two javelins. Everyone carries their short sword. Uniformity of weaponry becomes standardized. And you see that again in, say, the American army, where the only status symbol carrying a non-standard weapon says is it either says that you're an idiot, because you have to set up your own supply line for the damn thing. If you're carrying, say, a 45 caliber automatic pistol into a combat that is supplied only with nine millimeter bullets, you're humping a huge amount of ammunition for no reason. Or what it says is that your special forces and your weapons are being, you know, modded for the mission or that you're so used to operating without any great uh, logistical chain anyway that uh, you can afford to carry non-standard weapons. Right. And the common thread in uh, both the American army and the Roman army is they were all really well trained. Yeah. And uh, conversely, if uh, the bandits are coming and the noble rides up over the hill and sticks a spear in your hand and has half an hour to train you in spear training, guess what? You're a peasant and a spear is the most efficient way to fight that requires almost no training. So um, one of the things that you want to look at in an F-20 world where the weapons can get crazy is the status that might accrue from uh, fictional weirdo fantasy weapons uh, might go according to the level of training they require. And if uh, you're playing a rule set that implies that you have to have something special about you to be a high-level adventurer and that most of the people that you encounter will never be able to achieve your status and perhaps there's something even innate about you, something that is uh, in keeping with your destiny, just having like a double chain weapon or, uh, you know, a whip or something that you're effective with but other people are not could, uh, first of all, announce to people that you are part of the adventuring class, whatever that is, and uh, so then that, I guess, broadens into a, a wider discussion, perhaps beyond the remit of this segment, of how uh, adventurers with great destinies fit into a, a social hierarchy, because uh, having a weirdo weapon could mark you out as a dangerous outsider to be feared or to run away from, but if you're the only guy you know, who wields the double-reversing chainsword, uh, that's probably the case. But if there's a school for double-reversing chainswords at which the uh, gentry uh, go to uh, master this particular esoteric art, and therefore it's associated with being uh, wealthy and having the time to train and perhaps even train at something that's sort of uh, idle and frivolous until you get good at it, right? It's the opposite of a spear, that you have to wound yourself a ton of times with nunchucks before you figure out how to use them, that any of these uh, uh, sort of exotic weapons could either indicate that you're the other, or they could indicate that you're at the very top of the social structure, and anyone just seeing you carry one in your belt 
makes one or the other assumption about you the moment they see you and they react to you accordingly. The other thing that you can do rather than type of weapon is something that we may be more familiar with in terms of status seeking uh, in our culture. And that would be sort of the model. So uh, over the period of Elizabeth's reign in England, uh, fashions in rapiers or what were called rapiers, we probably wouldn't recognize them as rapiers now, but fashions in rapiers changed. And whether or not you had a thin hilt or a thick hilt, whether you had a cross pommel or a basket uh, pommel or a cross pommel or a round pommel, whether you had a basket or a, or a handle, all of these little elements, as well as, of course, you know, the uh, the quality of the, of the scabbard or the, or the materials in the scabbard, uh, whether or not your, um, uh, you had bare steel showing or whether it was covered up with, uh, ivory or, or whatever else. These, uh, but the shape of your sword specifically would mark you as someone who was a member of a specific fencing school. And as fencing schools waned and waxed in fashionability, having the more current sword made you a more au courant hip courtier and being associated with an older fencing style and therefore an older, more outmoded, less fashionable fencing school came to be a mark of someone who was sort of a country bumpkin or an outsider or a guy who didn't have a lot of money and wasn't able to afford the fancy new fencing school because once Italians heard that there were British nobles who wanted to be taught fencing, they flocked to London and all of them set up fencing schools in the same sort of way that you have a whole bunch of fashion houses uh, competing to dress the various supermodels. You have a whole bunch of fencing schools competing to literally, in some cases, dress the leading courtiers at Elizabeth's court. Right. And in a, in a game where investigation matters and being able to infer things about people, you can then draw conclusions from people according to the hilt designs that they're wearing. So if you see somebody with an older school uh, that and he's young, that might mean that he can only afford this uh, less fashionable school that is now all the way down on Pig Alley and the uh, the guy who teaches it isn't as good as the original master. Or it could just mean that, you know, he got the sword handed down to him or found it in a grave mound or something. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's uh, also the aspect of what non-player characters or GMC's gear tells the player characters about them. So that if you meet somebody on the road who has gilded armor with all sorts of uh, jewels on it and ornamentation and a really uh, elaborate uh, mask-like helmet, that tells you that that person is uh, very wealthy or has just stolen this armor from a very wealthy <laughs> person and is uh, choosing to wear it. And perhaps that they are not necessarily a great fighter because... They may just be familiar with ceremonial combat and not the real thing. Or it could mean that they're a complete badass who can get away with wearing this fancy armor that's possibly impeding and not necessarily perfect for streamlined combat because they are such an incredible uh, badass that it's it's a mere nothing to them. Or, of course, in uh, an F-20 game, there's always the option that the weirdo armor is being worn because it is also uh, super magical uh, as well as introducing a hint of uh, status. And so that that's another thing that uh, if uh, magical items are known by their manufacturer, the way the hilts associate with different fencing schools, that you could be able to tell right away that, oh, well, this, this spi reverse spiral wand is clearly a wand of fireballs. Uh, everybody knows that's the usual design uh, from Fermonto the Mar Marvelous from 200 years ago. I'm going to back away from this guy because he could 
shoot a fireball at me at any moment. And so, of course, once you introduce magic into the equation, there's the question of, you know, how much of a trade is there in magic? How many people have magic items that they don't really use because it is a sign of uh, status? And uh, how many people have, uh, you know, dug them up out of, uh, out of dungeons? And perhaps, you know, there are all sorts of other adventurers who retire as soon as they find something like that because they can sell it to a nobleman who's never going to use it, but is going to keep it in his belt to go to the the masked ball and impress everybody with his fireball wand. Or he will have it uh, stored away as sort of the implicit social contract that we're not going to come down on these commoners who go and do the useful social function of clearing orcs out of the local cave. But if they find anything that could actually harm medieval society, they're expected to turn it over for the uh, perhaps not... um, as generous as the adventurers would like reward, but enough of a reward to keep them in, you know, sort of middle class fighting trim so they can at least keep clearing orcs out of the caverns. Uh, and that can be a hand wave gesture that you use to indicate why the, the, the medieval feudal civilization that you're wandering around in an F20 game has not imploded under the weight of magic and everything else that would, of course, historically and naturally implode it about ten and a half seconds after all this stuff started happening. But if you imply that most magic items gravitate towards the wizard's guild, the big temples of the main clerics, and uh, the, the noble houses, that sort of gives at least... The, the back of your mind, that throwaway as to why the, the medieval world keeps functioning as a medieval world. Uh, when, of course, you know, all of these things that change the nature of um, uh, uh, man's relationship to man, as they say, you know, uh, God made man and Samuel Colt made them equal. Uh, the fireball wand would have a similar effect, I imagine. Right. And so, you, you know, you might be torn uh, between, well, we can use the fireball wand to uh, tackle bigger and better enemies, or we can just cash it in and we can all uh, buy better basic equipment. And one reason, if you find it desirable as a GM to encourage F20 characters to continue spending money on mundane equipment, uh, which depends also on how much the system requires them to have uh, magical goods that they mostly find. But let's say we're looking at a world where you have to go buy your uh, weapons and armor and then it gets enchanted and, you know, uh, so that it has that sort of interesting aspect of giving yourself sort of more style choice over what it is that you're picking and choosing as gear rather than just having an amalgam of stuff that you found in a, a barrel full of whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say that this is the, the setup. Then you have the option of weapons and armor that provide social interaction bonuses so or penalties. So the sword that you get as a first level uh, fighter is perfectly functional, perhaps even more so uh, when you're going to end fight uh, goblins and hack off the heads of centipedes and stuff. But once you uh, emerge from the dungeon and head into town, you notice that all of the people that you want to talk to in positions of power and authority and even tradesmen and everything uh, look down upon you as if you were uh, but a mere a wretch because they're looking at that plain sword and they know that you can't afford a better sword because why would you be carrying that sword if you uh, had had a choice? So then you have to go, you know, to the blacksmith and upgrade to a better, more filigreed, more ornate sword that costs uh, more money. And then once you keep going on, well, okay, n- now tradesmen don't look down on me, but, you know, the big 
merchant house leaders, they still look down on me. So, okay, I guess I better get that lapis lazuli inset on my pommel to show that I've spent even more uh, money on my weapons. And I guess I better go for a full polish set of plate as opposed to that uh, this mismatched set that I found originally in the horde full of skeletons. And so that can give you uh, uh, another way to kind of progress in society by getting cool stuff the way that you progress uh, as an adventurer in an F20 game. And if your uh, game rewards social combat or social adventuring in that way, uh, you know, you might say, well, this is my sword and it may only be plus one, you know, against uh, in combat, but it's a plus two in social combat because it's the newest, neatest, hippest branded thing. And the choices of gear uh, to make these points can have mechanical utility as well as uh, role-playing utility, because, of course, everyone loves to, you know, list all their stuff and draw their character and this and that and the other thing. And obviously, if you, the more options you have to pick from, the more players will tend to focus on those options. If everything is just sword, hand and a half sword, long sword, then that's all you've ever given them. But if you give them the option to say, you know, is this sword, does this say you uh, are friendly with the dwarves? Does it have obvious dwarf craftsmanship? Is it elven filigree? Those are now choices that you, that also drive your social uh, uh, type person. It's like, well, he's a ranger, so normally we'd expect him to be an elf buddy, but his sword has got dwarven um, uh, work on the hilt, so maybe he's... A cave ranger? I don't know. This guy's kind of weird and interesting. And you can sim, you can signal, uh, all manner of different things. You can si- signal it by what kind of, uh, religious symbol you have, uh, in, uh, put into the hilt or into your shield. Because of course, uh, classically, uh, medieval knights would go around with the cross if they were on crusade or they'd have, uh, their various arms, uh, and livery, uh, spangling everything. So you can indicate your feudal allegiance. You can indicate, uh, the god whose, uh, clerics you hope will heal you. You could indicate all manner of, uh, memberships and allegiances by dint of the metalwork, by dint of the design, by dint of everything. And if the GM expects you to do that, because there will be legitimate story payback or comeback, depending on what you pick, then those choices becomes a little more interesting than just shopping for exactly, oh, do I want high hard boots or high soft boots? You know, um, it becomes more of a, of a story and character element. But again, that's on the GM to make sure that it has some degree of, uh, story payback. Otherwise, it's just, you know, empty blue booking and not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. But it's certainly, I think that you have more story possibilities than with encumbrance tracking, for yes, example. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so what you can do is essentially each weapon has, uh, the equivalent of a, uh, Call of Cthulhu credit rating where it is, you know, this sword, it uh, marks you as uh, being really good at relating to uh, nobles or to uh, merchants or to the ordinary guy in the street. Because, of course, in a, a world where uh, the uh, working class hold nobles in ill repute when they're oppressive, uh, they might not like it so much if you come into their bar all covered in uh uh, spangled gear with uh, gems dripping off them because that indicates that you're looking down on them and it's like your sword your sword thinks it's better than me uh, sort of thing and so that uh, you know introduces a possibility of the you know the character who 
impersonates people has to have an entire armory of weaponry that works for each social class because if you want to pose as a uh, down-on-his-luck ruffian, you obviously can't take your plus-three sword that you've had enchanted up the wazoo because you've also had the uh, hilt gilded uh, and it has a an emblem marking your royal crest. You've got a, oh man, what's what's the most magical sword I have that won't get me uh, outed if I uh, head into this uh, hive of scum and villainy. And uh, on that note, uh, Robin and I shall select the swords needed to enter another hut. Remember when we were riffing scenarios about eggshells and fairies a few episodes back? I remember it like it was February 20th. If only we had known of the small folk. This new Wainscott urban fantasy RPG is by veteran designer Phil Masters. Co-author of the Discworld and Hellboy role-playing games. That's two separate games, not a combo game. And a lot of other stuff. Uh, what, the listener may ask, is a Wainscott fantasy? That means it's set in a society hidden alongside the regular human world. Your characters live literally hidden in the walls and under the floorboards of the human world. The small folk, descendants of the fairy folk of legend, just two to four inches tall after all. Use stealth, cunning, and magic to survive and prosper while engaging in rivalry and very small-scale politics. The game uses a customized version of the popular Fate Rules Engine. Take your pick of seven different small folk cliques from aggressive goblins. To managerial brownies or technophile gremlins. Or the cliqueless, because some people just have to be different. Choose from an array of skills and magic powers. Personalize your character with unique aspects and stunts. And then get out there and get underfoot. All the while watching out for cats, rats, hawks, mousetraps, owls, ferrets. To grab this 116-page PDF... Creep under the floorboards at Warehouse 23 and search for The Small Folk. That's warehouse23.com. Or follow the link in the show notes. And those swords needed are not swords at all, but they are perhaps uh, compasses and maybe a protractor or two, but perhaps a protractor with the hammer and sickle incised upon it. For dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We're about to enter a particularly Soviet instance of the Cartography Hut, which I have subtitled as a quote from a particular article, All My Reindeer Have Perished. Uh, an article, a feature article on uh, from Wired uh, recently came out and was, uh, I think, sent to me by a bunch of people. <laughs> yes. And I bet sent to you by a bunch of people. By an odd coincidence, yes, By an indeed. odd coincidence. This is an article about the world of Soviet cartography and the uh, people who collect uh, Soviet-era uh, maps and uh, the uh, mysteries and wonders uh, contained therein. And it's a great article in Wired, which we're going to link to from the show notes. And uh, I'm partly tempted just to list highlights from the article yeah, for just, 15 minutes. Just read the article to people. Just, just read the article, but you can do that yourself. But there may, I have some highlights that I want to share, but uh, we'll try and move on uh, also to interpreting uh, what you can do with uh, all of the cool information in this article in terms of uh, fiction and gaming. So Ken, as a scholar of uh, the, not only the Cold War, but also of maps, 
uh, it, was there something uh, that particularly struck you that you want to zero in on first? Uh, this is basically a, an article about uh, a guy named John Davies, who's a, a former software engineer, now retired, who uh, sort of pioneered the collection of uh, uh, Soviet maps because at, at the end of the Cold War, the order went out from the army to destroy all of these valuable maps. And of course, the people with the valuable maps went, this is Russia. We are going to sell valuable maps. And so, <laughs> well, actually, what they went is, this is not Russia anymore. <laughs> Screw your orders, because right. most of these maps Union wound up anymore. being in the uh, in the Baltic states, right. uh, in Estonia and Latvia, is where uh, the, uh, the the guards on the on the big map archive uh, said, "Hey, guess what? We don't care about anymore the Soviet Union." So uh, the act of selling off these warehouses full of maps, and in theory. Uh, there are possibly a million separate maps that the that this Soviet cartographic project produced. Um, they said something like uh, thirteen rail cars worth of maps that are bought by one guy to uh, to, to import into uh, the West to sell to map collectors and people like that. And it turned out also to sell to security officials because guess what? The Soviets had mapped say Afghanistan a lot better than we had, and so therefore it became uh, very handy for our uh, forces in Afghanistan to have these crazily detailed Soviet maps. And the interesting thing that I think a lot of people may have, uh, you know, sort of nodded off during is that the official Soviet maps that were published in Soviet publications were always terrible because knowledge of where something was, was quite often a state secret. And that could extend to entire towns or it could just extend to street maps of Moscow. Famously, uh, the, the cabbies in Moscow, their map of Moscow was the CIA information fact map of <laughs> Moscow uh, because there was no reliable Russian map of Moscow available to uh, people without a top secret clearance. Right, And the cartographer who figured out the particular way to crock civilian <laughs> maps available in the Soviet Union won the Stalin Prize <laughs> yes. for introducing confusion into civilian uh, navigation. But as one assumes, after capturing the German maps of Russia during World War II, and there's an interesting thing in that Moscow 1937 book that I talked about that the Germans mapped Russia better than anyone had ever mapped Russia. And they'd been doing that in the thirties. Um, again, in, you know, in very, very, uh, dangerous conditions. A lot of times the Soviet, the red army would capture the German maps and then use those German maps to take, uh, the Soviet union and then Eastern Europe back from the Nazis. And I suspect, uh, the, the general, the Stavka or Stalin looked at those maps and said, we want these maps only better for all of, uh, the Soviet Union. And that's what they went and did. And so they produced these, um, obsessively detailed. If you are familiar with USGS survey maps or even, uh, ordnance maps of, uh, you know, the British government or the American government make, the, the Soviet maps are, are better. Uh, they're, they're more detailed. They're, in many cases, they're, they're more informative. The uh, way that they present the information, the article compares it to sort of an almanac or a, or a Wikipedia article, even in the terms of the depth of information that's available on a given map. They're really, really terrific maps. And of course, because they were the Soviets building them, they were not responding to American or British classification. So if I assume the Soviet map of Portland Down is way more detailed than the Ordnance Survey map of Portland Down, likewise, their map of the uh, San Diego Naval Station is far more detailed than uh, the USGS map of the San Diego Naval Station because 
they wanted to print all the classified details in order to let the eventual Soviet subcommander uh, know where he was going to fire his missiles. It wasn't their classified details. <laughs> nope. um, but even in the uh, within Russia, even in peacetime, mapping Russia was not a safe activity by any means. <laughs> no. And there's a, a great detail in the article about one mapmaker who reaches the end of where the uh, established maps are, basically, and it goes on for a little while longer, and he sees a note pinned to a tree left by the last cartographer, as if he's a, a, a gumshoe GMC leaving a clue for the uh, for the characters. And the note, I love that the, uh, the phrasing of the note, uh, it goes on after this, but the beginning is, all my reindeer have perished. <laughs> the food stores became bear's prey. <laughs> this is how this, this is how Robin signals to the author of this article that the article should have begun. <laughs> uh, you can bury that nugget, as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah. I, yeah. So you're you're okay with uh, the guy landing on the tarmac in Estonia with a quarter million dollars, surrounded by gun wielding uh, Russian thugs? I wouldn't get as much credit for finding this nugget if it was at the beginning. That That's true. Reading the article, which we said yes. we weren't going to do. But speaking Robinology of that, is much like Kremlinology. There's always depths. Yes. Um, <laughs> another great thing is it also references a Soviet military manual that is actually now in print somewhere that begs to be turned into a table in a role-playing uh, book uh, because it lists... The distances from which you can hear things. <laughs> and so a snapping twig can be heard up to 80 meters away. Troop movements on foot up to 300 meters on a dirt road or 600 meters on a highway. An idling tank up to 1,000 meters. A rifle shot up to 4,000 meters. So Steve Jackson Games, if you did not produce a GURPS book based on that Soviet uh, military manual... I think somebody somewhere is missing a trick. <laughs> the old uh, line from, from Spartan, um, uh, you can smell an American cigarette 12 miles away across the desert. So stay out of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the speaking of tanks, that's another uh, interesting fact from the article is that the uh, Soviets were interested in a um, much more drilled down scale than uh, the American military ever was because the U.S. military based their maps on aerial overflight because, of course, they had air superiority, whereas the... And the U-2. Yeah, and the U-2. Whereas the... Uh, so those maps were maps of where you would bomb, whereas the Soviet superiority, such as it was, was in tanks. Um, now, the question is how you would get tanks to Galveston, uh, which is one of the places that they mapped in, in like one to... 10,000 detail um, is, a, is something perhaps we can explore later in the segment, <laughs> but they ne uh, needed uh, basically the 1 to 50,000 scale because their focus was on ground troops, and that's the tactical level that you need if you're going to dominate the world uh, using your, your tank fleet, which I thought was another um, really interesting detail that showed the, the contrast between the two uh, sides in the Cold War. Yeah, and you know, again, the the Soviets, I think, uh, and again, I think a lot of this whole organizational system, the the whoever gave the initial order, and I suspect it was Stalin for these maps to get made, was very much of the opinion: if you uh, make it and don't need it, that's better than if you need it and didn't make it. Uh, and I think that that's where a lot of these sort of you know insistences on you know, a, a mapping somewhere for tank warfare that, like Galveston, the odds are against ever actually engaging in tank warfare over. But, 
handy to have. And it also is sort of a way, I think, that the Soviets could count coup on the Americans. Uh, they were pretty sure that you weren't going to be, you know, driving their uh, T-85s uh, uh, around Texas. We're in your base, exquisitely mapping it. Exactly. And, and so, but the notion that they had a better military map of Texas than the American military is a great way for them to say, look, we're functionally superior as an armed force and as a society and as a system of organization than stupid capitalist Americans who just fly over with their satellites or their, or their, uh, or their uh, photography planes and slap together some piece of garbage map. And, and had a low motivation to invade Texas. And it also had a low motivation unless Jade <laughs> Helm has gone, uh, according to secret plan while you listen to this, but no, um, yeah, the, so the, I, I think a lot of it is, is ideological in the sense, and unlike most results of Soviet ideology, it actually produces a better product than a worse product. And, and so that's, that's part of where it comes from. And then also, making maps like that is its own kind of pleasure. The ability to translate, you know, information from spies on the ground, from, uh, photographs taken by ostensible tourists, from all of these places that they get these very specific uh, data points and then putting them onto the map. That's sort of its own little pleasure. And one assumes that these guys who are making these maps are the absolute first ranking guys out of the Soviet cartographic academies. Because if you're the third ranking guy, you get to make the terrible map of Moscow that no one uses. Uh, or you get to make the, uh, deliberately distorted maps of the Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, so that when NATO drives into, uh, Russia, uh, to, to invade it, like a bunch of capitalists, um, they're going to be lost because Kiev is eight miles in the wrong direction or whatever. I'm sorry, Sergei, you have been demoted to crap map department. Crap map division. Um, so how do we uh, take uh, this uh, vast uh, pile of uh, cartographic richness and use it as uh, inspiration for our uh, games or our genre fiction? Well, I think that we, we can begin with the notion that in addition to these one to 10,000 scale maps that are literally insane, uh, level of scale for a, for a map. It's and almost like campaign cartographer style. Accessibility. <laughs> it really is. And, and, and I think that you start to look at not just the map, but at the information that is stored on the maps. And I think we've previously talked about the psychogeography and, um, the way that, uh, there are going to be different stories going on, or you can be mapping the magical qualities of a pro of a, of a land. In this case, maybe there is, and one hesitates to go full Borges on it, but there can certainly say that there's say a one in 6,666 scale map that once you map something at that scale, you've actually created like a voodoo image of it. Uh, you've created a sympathetic magical link to that spot. And so you can, uh, hide spies there, or you can, uh, manipulate traffic by, you know, moving, uh, lines around on the map. And back in the day before CAD CAM software, if you wanted to do a magical working with your one to 6,666 scale map of, um, uh, Peru, Indiana, then you have to redraw that map with no, with the built, with the missing building. So a ritual could take, you know, days to complete because you have to finish out the map. And once you've got the maps uh, uh, printed, maybe what you can do is you can put them on the light table and then scratch out the building with your exacto athame and create 
the invisible ward or whatever other sorts of effects you're having on that, on that building or on that spot on the, uh, uh sympathetically mapped, uh, sympathetic scale map of, uh, Peru, Indiana or Galveston or, uh, uh, Luanda, Angola or wherever it is. And that that's, uh, what's going on and that there is another warehouse somewhere or maybe mixed in with one of these warehouses that got sold. So the guy who bought this one rail car full of maps doesn't know that in that rail car, there is one box of maps. And in that very first anecdote, he says that the boxes were packed in pine needles, which when you combine with those guys that vanished into Yakutia, uh, putting notes up on the pine trees and then got eaten by, uh, by bears or, or werewolves, that's sort of a, maybe there's a little magical. It's all part of the scheme of the pine trees to reclaim the globe and to show us that, uh, all of our attempts to build, uh, ports and rail yards and top secret installations, uh, ultimately are all going to come to naught when the, uh, natural forces of the, uh, taiga come back to, uh, uh, roll over the world again and reclaim it from humanity. Uh, another, uh, Galveston really stuck up in my mind because, of course, uh, that's where, uh, Robert Durst uh, killed the person he admitted to killing, though not uh, he claims it's self-defense. And so it might be that the existence of all of these uh, magically potent uh, small-scale Soviet maps, uh, if you run a awry of one of the uh, the lines on them, that can reduce you to a, a sudden spate of, uh, of violent madness. And it may be that uh, you know each of these little uh, cities that was uh, focused on for weird reasons. Uh, turns out to be a, a murder locus. And so uh, as Ezoterrorists, your job is to find the original Ur maps uh, that have been scattered to the four winds and perhaps are in uh, possession of actual Ezoterrorists and to destroy them in order to protect the integrity of the world because they may be ways for the outer dark entities to uh, pour in through our world, even though they weren't intended as such, that they wound up becoming such because of the psychic associations of the uh, map makers as they uh, made these maps in these uh, weird little corners of the world. So it's uh, maybe the Soviets originally intended uh, Galveston as a thing to map just because it was a port and they wanted to study the economy, but it has taken on this uh, magical quality due to uh, you know something that the original map maker did when he visited Galveston and all and Scranton and all and Niagara Falls, New York, and all these other little weird centers that you wouldn't expect uh, the Soviets to be interested in. I seem to remember, uh, I can't find it, uh, or I couldn't find it in the brief amount of looking that I did, but I thought, uh, Tawanda and North Tawanda similarly popped out for me because I thought that there was one of those, um, uh, sort of self-radicalizing, uh, terror cells that they'd rounded up in, in Tawanda or in the Tawanda area way back in the, in the two thousands. And so the notion that these, uh, specific maps on the, uh, on the teeny scale in America are places that they've begun the working and they were going to map all of America at that, but the Soviet Union fell. And so the only magical maps in existence are these, uh, Pontiac, Michigan, Galveston, Texas, Bristol and Scranton, Pennsylvania, Syracuse, Tawanda, Watertown and Niagara Falls, New York. And so those places have the capacity for magic. They've activated the ley lines. They were getting ready to put their big whammy on America. And maybe you only need another, um, what is that? That's, uh, eight locations. So you need only another, uh, five to have the magical 13 that lets you bring down, uh, the capitalist Americans. And so if you can finish these five maps, that gives you sort of a nice rod of seven parts, uh, field of the campaign. And you can, 
if you, if you can find those old cartographic, uh, magics and you can do five more maps at that scale, you can, you know, uh, control America's lay grid or something because Niagara Falls obviously is producing ley lines because of, uh, the whole, um, Tesla and, uh, and the, the first, uh, electrification of an American city and all of the love magic that takes place there in Niagara Falls. So obviously we just have to figure out what Nate, what the nature of the, of the chakra points uh, these other places are. And so many of them are there in upstate New York, because of course we've covered previously the burned over district is where America's natural magical, um, uh, uh, crust is thinnest and all the crazy just bubbles up out of there all the time. Right. So basically you've got a, a pile of maps that functions as the documents in an Armitage style or Dracula dossier style toolbox campaign in which at the beginning of the thing, you're handed all of these maps and there's like, well, there's something weird about each of these places and it's different in each of these places, but you've got to go and um, tamp it down and veil it out or the great eruption will occur. And so, uh, you know, it's, it should be, uh, you know, relatively easy then to just do a, a Ken Height style cross-referencing of anything in the world plus weirdness. And so you would, you know, do your Fortean research and find out, you know, oh, well, there's UFO sightings near uh, this location. So this is going to be the UFO scenario. And we've got our um, you know, murder beheading scenario in, in Galveston and our electric Tesla thing in, in uh, Niagara Falls. And you add a couple more and there you go. You've got your uh, not world spanning per se, but America spanning uh, campaign uh, right there, courtesy of the Soviet Union. And as soon as the Soviet Union is doing us a favor, it's time to move to our next segment. the projector, the smell of popcorn, the sticky sensation under our feet tell us that we've settled in for another viewing in the cinema hut. And today, after the previews, after the car ads, after the advice to silence your phones, although don't silence your phone now, you'll miss the rest of the podcast, uh, comes <laughs> well, the... Well, silence the part of your phone that makes noise, yeah, except in your e- earbuds. Except for the podcast noise. Yeah, you're wearing earbuds. You're covered. You're, you're good. Um, comes the opening scene of the movie. And while in many cases that opening scene can let you build to a even greater and more thrilling conclusion other times the opening scene is pretty much the only reason to go and you can get up and leave as as with say the last run of bond movies um <laughs> <laughs> yes and it's, it's good at the trailer of the new bond movie to tell me that bond isn't in it so yes, that can it's a, give it a complete it's, skip it's a real set it's a real savings yeah. oh so, so painful. This must be what people who are still going to go see Superman v. Batman feel like, is that they watch that trailer and, oh, I have to watch that? I, I can't not watch a movie called Spectre. It's just against my rules. Um, but yeah, it'll be terrible. Anyway, uh, but the great opening scenes can serve many purposes, uh, both to the film and to us as a way of letting us know how to maybe establish mood over a campaign or to just give us one really great scene to rip off. Uh, Robin, what great opening scenes pop to your mind when you say suggest this topic for a hut? Right. 
So in the hastening to add department, I'm going to hasten to add that this is not a comprehensive list. I don't think probably from you or from me. Of we, we don't do this. Favorite opening scenes of all time. Uh, although these would probably all be somewhere on my, my list, but they are a list of great scenes. So um, if you want to type in your, I'm surprised you didn't mention X or Y, go ahead and do that. But it was not our intention to be comprehensive or to, to list our number ones or whatever. Um, that having been said, I think the number one opening sequence, which heavily features tapirs, <laughs> would be the opening of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and so uh, that film begins uh, uh, with the ultimate Stanley Kubrick shot, because, of course, he is famous for basically a cosmic eye view on the tiny uh, creatures we like to call uh, humanity. So it opens with the longest Kubrick shot of all, the shot of Earth as the uh, sun comes into view behind it as, uh, uh, from uh, outer space. And then, of course, it goes into that famous segment of the hominids as they discover uh, eventually the use of weaponry. And so the things that struck me about that sequence while rewatching it were, first of all, how long it is. I remember it as being much shorter, but it's a it unfolds at a really stately pace. There's a lot of really long landscape shots, and it... Uh, presents a thesis, which is not only the thesis for 2001, but for all of Kubrick's oeuvre, uh, which is, you know, the uh, um, mankind and what a, a tiny sort of sliver of uh, civilization that we have on, on our uh, behavior and also the ironic nature of what it is that advanced us to the stars. So, of course, it's a famous sequence where the hominids are sad and lonely on the great veldt and they're uh, hanging around peacefully with their tapir friends and uh, uh, they're unable to resolve conflicts or, or uh, win against one another they can just sort of hoot at each other and then finally one of the hominids uh, looks is playing with a bone and it gets the great idea i could use this bone to club a tapir and uh, then it uh, you get your slow motion uh, tapir being killed and the the uh, hominids all eating together and they've advanced themselves and then they come to the next step of realization and this of course is after they encounter the black monolith so there's a suggestion that some sort of outside force has sparked the hominids to develop this uh, this technology and uh, so they uh, realize that the bone can also be a weapon against each other a weapon of murder so you have Kubrick's uh, capitulation of the uh, Cain and Abel story. And then finally, of course, in that super famous shot, the uh, hominid throws the bone up into the sky and it twists and turns. And then there's the dissolve into a space station, which sort of implies that without our uh, appetite for uh, weaponry and war and murder, we would not have advanced ourselves uh, with advance, possibly in scare qu uh, quotes, to the point it is today. And so that's a really... A powerful, evocative example of an opening that advances a thematic thesis, and it's one that you uh, don't see, uh, pardon the expression, aped a lot today. And so I think that really, in terms of establishing uh, a mood and a tone, and more importantly, a theme, is one of the great openings of cinema. All right. On the uh, sort of other end of the scale, uh, not to say that this is not a great opening, because that is our topic, but one that is not on a 2001 on any level, uh, except I think that maybe the movie was made in 2001, is uh, <laughs> 13 Ghosts, the opening sequence of which a is... deep cut. 
a deep cut. It is a deep cut, but the opening sequence is good in all the ways that you hope the rest of the movie will be. And I enjoy 13 Ghosts, by the way. I, I enjoyed all the Castle remakes, but I enjoyed the first ones, and so it was fun to see them get remade in contemporary sensibilities. But that aside, that opening bit where they're in the junkyard hunting down the juggernaut ghost, and they have... uh, And it, it establishes so much character in that little segment about the F. Murray Abraham guy, the, the, the evil ghost hunter and the, the feckless Matthew Lillard character. I guess you could sort of shorten that to Matthew Lillard character. Um, are, are there trying to capture the ghost and the degree to which the other guy's lives are sort of sacrificed. And then the great bravura moment at the end when they bring in the tanker truck full of blood and just spray everything that, that just sets a tone that the rest of the movie spends a long time either trying to live up to or trying to undermine. Coincidentally, I loved that sequence and stopped watching shortly after it. <laughs> well, there you go. That was probably, although watching it for the, uh, the set design of, of the haunted house is actually pretty great too. But the, but that opening sequence is such a terrific part of a Delta green scenario or a, uh, more over the top call of Cthulhu type scenario, trail of Cthulhu scenario, something with modern sociopathic ghost hunters. That's just a really strong gameable moment. And so when I watched it, uh, that is what immediately occurred to me is what a, a terrific movie that was a part of. And it turned out not to be this movie, but still I, I just found that that, that scene just worked so powerfully on its own. And I think that's another interesting uh, quality to a, a really great opening sequence is that even if there's no movie afterward, even if Indiana Jones stops, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark stops with Indiana getting onto the plane and flying away, that whole opening sequence could have led you into any number of other great movies. Uh, as it transpires, the rest of Raiders is also great. Uh, but that opening sequence is just a perfect little segment in and of itself. And that's because obviously Lucas and Spielberg are trying to ape serials because all of them had to be little 12 minute uh, right. independent pieces. And, and of course the, the bond cold openings as well. Right. So yeah. That, that was very explicitly, uh, there was some, I think some initial talks at that point of Spielberg doing a bond and uh, it's like only British directors get to do bond. So uh, instead he, uh, he did that, but that's very much in the spirit of the, the bond cold openings that establish the, uh, character and uh, is a great little set piece in and of itself um not so far from uh indiana jones is uh, uh star wars let's keep this initially on a, a a nerdy tip and i would point to this as a great example of the uh in media res opening so you've got the first of all you've got galaxy far far away and all that and you get the little bit of a crawl but and unlike pre later segments and uh doesn't matter and it doesn't interfere with the, the opening of the film. And then you've got that great uh, scene, uh, a shot of the uh, uh, spacecraft where you have the rebel craft go by and then you have the uh, Imperial Dreadnought and it just keeps going and going and going. And uh, I think even now it's sort of hard to cast your mind back to 1977 and what an incredible break that was with everything that was going on in film at that time and just the oh my god the ship is going to keep going and then it cuts into the ship and there's action already and uh you introduces the robots and r2d2 who's the protagonist of the first act of star wars as i think i mentioned before <laughs> and, and in some cases of the whole trilogy <laughs> uh yes and then uh you know and it's exciting right away and it, there's stuff going on and it introduces the villain it introduces the MacGuffin, um and it's just a really uh 
a great example of getting your plot rolling right away. There's a ton of stuff going on there plot-wise, but there's no exposition unless you count that text crawl, which doesn't isn't really essential. Um, and so uh, that, I think, uh, 2001, it's sort of hard to think of how to uh, turn that into a, a gameable um, opening, that that would have to be sort of a, a, a sort of a GM narrative filigree at the beginning of something. But with, uh, with Star Wars, you really see um, how uh, strong and rich it can be to start the action as late as you can possibly start it and still have the story roll. So there isn't the big meeting where they talk about uh, the importance of the Death Star plans that comes later. After you're invested. After you're invested. But the opening is all about getting things moving. Uh, and that first Star Wars film is, is a textbook case of great momentum all the way through um, and about presenting the amount of story you need in order to have a story. Uh, Ken, what's, what else uh, do you think of when you think of great cinematic openings? Um, I think uh, to stay in our sort of nerdy universe uh, and not to just uh, keep doing uh, opening set pieces, obviously the opening of Captain America 2, much like the rest of that movie, is one of the best in the Marvel Universe. But I think wh when we look back on it, the opening of Iron Man is really effective in that we just, you know, we don't have a big setup about who Tony Stark is. We establish all of that with him in that Humvee driving over the Afghan desert. And that is a pure character opening because the action, uh, the, the ambush really ends the scene that the whole opening is just telling us who Tony Stark is and establishing information, but it's, in it's a showing us who Tony it, it's, Stark it's, is. it's showing us and there's some degree of telling, but it, but it's, it's showing us, but it's giving us in such a personable, uh, human level. And, and that, that was always the old knock on the DC heroes was that they were gods and unapproachable supermen. And the Marvel characters were supposed to be human and down to earth and relatable. And, you know, hepcats like you and me, Marvel fans, because yeah, we're all billionaire industrialists. Exactly. But, the way that uh John Favreau decides to open up Iron Man, and again, I'm not a fan of the 45-minute origin uh story as a general rule in superheroes, but John Favreau, like Daniel Burnham, uh is good enough uh that he can break my rule. And and so that opening bit where you all you have is just character being established in almost literally a box. Uh, there's not even any ability to move to establish character. It's all got to be done in faces and voices and dialogue. And by the time the ambush happens, it turns out, you know, everything you need to know about Tony Stark and you find out more things, but those things reassure you or they act to deepen a pre-existing character, but not contradict it. And that is kind of a, and it turns out that as an opener for what turns out to be a gigantic, uh, you know, ocean spanning uh monstrosity of a, of a film franchise that it also still works because uh iron man has sort of been the, the the heart of a lot of those decisions and when marvel has stumbled it's because they've gone away from those openers and tried to do a thing where well we're gonna have to explain to you that asgard is important and blah 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 and everything else it's like yeah yeah it's it, we went voluntarily to a movie called thor let's yeah. let's get it going people <laughs> yes if you want to look for an example of uh, Marvel going awry, it's like 
look at a Thor film. Yeah, or or don't. Um, hear us describe it. But the uh, but but that but that little that little bit at the beginning of of Iron Man because there's other great bits in Iron Man that are terrific set piece scenes. But I think that that opener is one to to keep in mind, and it can be uh gamified if you're saying, all right, the six of you are in the Humvee driving to the adventure. What do you talk about? You know, in character, give us you know four minutes of byplay amongst your characters. Let's try let's try and build that out. Yeah. What do you do or say that tells us the most important thing about your character? Right. Or what do you, what's the thing that you most want to ask that other character that you've heard of? Right. Yeah. You know, like, is it true you killed nine goblins on one, you know, in one blow? Well, it wasn't nine and two of them mostly lived, you know, that kind of thing. And then how do you play that out? That's, that's a, that's a great little, you know, sort of role playing uh, moment to, to, to pick up and carry away, I think. Right. And it comes in the package of implied danger because you're moving. Uh, toward, you know, it's kind of a miniature version of Stagecoach. Yeah, right. Uh, once you add a bunch of other characters to the mix. <laughs> um, I'd like to switch now to uh, my classic example of the slow burn, and that is the uh, extended opening sequence of Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Sergio Leone's right. uh, sort of classic, epic, operatic spaghetti western. And that's the one that uh, features... Uh, uh, Woody Strode and Jack Elam and the other guy with the beard uh, headed into this uh, bizarrely outsized uh, train station where uh, the the train platform is uh, about a football field wide and made of old planks and the uh, and so these are the gunmen who are uh, coming in to uh, presumably uh, do something really terrible and it's all done very very slowly and. The uh, famous Ennio Marconi score uh, doesn't come in at all, but uh, Marconi actually worked on the sound design of this sequence, which is all about squeaks and creaks and drips, and it's all uh, extremely attenuated, all creating this sort of sense of um, a build-up over a long uh, period of time. And so they come into the station, and they are silhouetted and framed in the doorways, and they look badass and scary, and then they just sit down, to wait for something to happen. And uh, the Jack Elam character has this big, uh, long, extended uh, interaction with a fly that keeps landing on his face. And it makes you wonder, it's like, did, what did they put on his face to make the, the fly, which is obviously a real fly, keep landing and doing what they wanted it to do? And how many takes did they make? And then finally he captures the, the fly in the barrel of his gun and holds it up next to his ear, suddenly contented. And uh, Woody Strode... Uh, in all of his gnarled glory, uh, chooses to sit under the water tank, and there's a little bit of condensation on the top of the water tank or on the bottom of the water tank, and it drips down. But he's picked the perfect position for where he wants to be, so he he doesn't move out of the drip. He just lets it keep falling on his hat, and then you know the train rolls into the station, and they're waiting for somebody, and it doesn't seem like the person they've uh, waiting for is even there and then the train pulls away and he's on the other side and the first bit of music occurs on the soundtrack but it's eidetic music it's the harmonica and the harmonica is being played by charles bronson and these characters who up until now you've been thinking oh well these are important main characters in this story that we've been following for uh you know this extremely attenuated powerful period of time then there's the gunfight and charles bronson blows them all away and that's it that's them for the whole film. Um, and it spent all this time building up these characters that turn out just to be establishing why Chuck Bronson is a, a badass. And so that's an incredible example of mood and pacing 
and uh, a real sort of setting the stage for the incredible scale of what uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is about to become. Uh, there, there are other examples of, of, of great openers, right? That, um, I mean, when you when you say uh, the great openers in uh, Westerns, I mean, there's the sort of set piece that begins Magnificent Seven, where we're establishing uh, both the badassness of uh, of Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen and their social, uh, uh, conscience as well. Very important in a sixties Western. And again, giving you a little, uh, story set piece and a sort of write and talk and get to know them. Like in the beginning of Iron Man, a lot of the things that I look at as, as great opening segments or opening scenes have done one or the other of the things that we're talking about here. Either they're providing a neat little story that could open up into any number of other movies, or they're providing an extended look at a character. Uh, the other one that I was thinking of uh, adducing is the opening of Clueless, which was similar to the opening of a lot of teen movies up until then, where you show the bedroom of the kid as a, as a shorthand of establishing character. And even now you see it like they pan over the guy's, uh, especially if it's a movie about a drunk private eye for some reason, you pan over his uh, nightstand and you see his cigarettes and his empty bottle of cheap bourbon and his, um, uh, his, his book so that we know that he's an intellectual character and the writer can identify with him. And, you know, the uh, detritus that shows that he's got no woman in his life and the old fashioned clock radio so that it can go ee, 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 and annoy everyone. And that sort of methodology seems to have sort of drifted down out of teen comedy into the, the lower form of, um, uh, of private eye film, but clueless is sort of the apotheosis of it because obviously the theme song does a lot of the work, but Alicia Silverstone does a lot of the work. And this is with no dialogue. This is just her picking out clothes that she's going to wear for the rest of the movie or for the rest of the, uh, for the opening thing to sort of set, move her into the high school where we can discover that she is as popular and delightful as everyone thinks she is. um, Or as she thinks she is. But that opening bit that is, it's, it's almost like a dance number. And in a lot of ways, it is a dance number because it's, it's about motion and choreography and establishing character with not so much with action, but with color and with, and, and with choices and with visual effects of, of that, not visual effects, but a, but a visual level of storytelling, sort of the opposite of the Morricone where it's all sounds and, 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 and wondering what's happening with the opening of Clueless. You always know what's happening. And then she has the hilariously clunky uh, software that picks out what blouse goes with which uh, shoes or whatever it is. And so we learn a lot about Cher from watching that opening sequence of Clueless, but we also, we we're pulled into the specific mood of the movie. That movie could only go one place. That movie can only become a high school comedy. It can't suddenly become a murder mystery or it can't sudden Charles Bronson is not going to show up and murder Alicia Silverstone at the end of that opener. We know that we're going to go into this and it's either going to be the story of her downfall or it's going to be the story of her finding true love. And of course, because it's based on Jane Austen's Emma, it's both. Um, and, and so it's a, it, it's a great little, you know, opener, Amy Heckerling, again, does a great job establishing uh, details economically, like most great directors do. And Alicia Silverstone does a great job, again, of telling you all about that character without a single spoken line of dialogue. And I think that that, you know, you, you, ex- you, you're sort of, when you're watching Clueless, you're waiting for the Jane Austen-y stuff to, to get there and start happening because everyone loves Jane Austen. But that opening bit does a lot more to show 
you literally, because it can't tell you what your protagonist, whose head you're going to literally be in for the whole movie, is like, and to establish sympathy with someone who, on the surface, is a spoiled rich idiot, and in theory you should not have any sympathy for them, but to establish the sort of well-meaning but not particularly wise approach to the world that she puts into everything she puts into getting ready to go to school. And so that's that's sort of a, a really nice, well-done, and I think... In a way, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like that Tony Stark sequence that we were talking about earlier, but it also, I think it's like a dance number that opens up a movie and says, okay, this is going to set an emotional tone. It's going to set a color tone and it's going to set sort of the beats that the movie will follow as, as we go forward. And, uh, a stealable, if not teachable moment is the, uh, just the idea of describe your, at the beginning of a campaign, ask each player, describe your character doing something in their environment and describe their environment. Where do they live? Um, and what does that tell us about them? So, uh, you know, the uh, studious librarian character can describe his studious library and the private eye can describe the aforementioned uh, ashtray by the uh, night table and the uh, mostly uh, consumed bottle of bourbon and the uh, hobo can describe himself riding the rails with a bunch of other hobos. And there you get your uh, immediate sort of introduction to everybody in a way that puts them in their uh, social context. So I, can, I have a longer list, but I'm just going to hit uh, one more. Maybe we can revisit this sometime in the future. But I uh, do want to mention uh, Breaking News by Johnny Toe uh, as my example of a Bravura uh, one-shot sequence. And so uh, this is uh, shows us uh, police officers staking out a gang of uh, armed robbers, but it starts with a classic establishing shot of the uh, skyscrapers of the city moves down to street level, uh, shows you the, the cops on their cars, a newspaper lands on the windshield of their car. Then the, uh, the camera without ever breaking uh, wanders up, goes up a flight, looks in at the window, shows you the robbers as they're uh, gathering their stuff, ready to go, moves back down as patrol officers mess up the stakeout by interfering with the robbers and uh, confronting them with a little traffic stop. And then um, an entire gunfight breaks out that starts off with the robbers shooting the patrol cops and the other cops uh, jumping in and the uh, camera moves uh, uh, toward the uh uh, robbers as they escape in a stolen ambulance, and then it moves all the way back behind the cops in their car as they jump out and finally start shooting and joining the fight, and it is all one shot. And the even more amazing thing is that it was shot not using a crane, but using a jury-rigged gimbal made of plywood. And so uh, if you, uh, it's, it beats the beginning of uh, Touch of Evil, it beats the beginning of The Player. Uh, it is uh, just in terms of uh, bravura movie making. I'm not sure if there's a role playing equivalent of a super long tracking shot, but it's uh, really in terms of uh, an amazing bit of cinema, which then continues on through a film, which is uh, great and exciting and engaging throughout rather than, oh, well, you just, you know, shot your your wad here. I guess there's nothing more to go. No, there's a lot more to go in Breaking News by Johnny Toe. With a with with a director like Johnny Toe or a director like um, uh, Sergio Leone, assuming that you have you know bonded yourself and that that was the reason to come in is not the way to bet because someone like Johnny Toe or someone like Morricone uh, or, or Leone rather doesn't begin a film strong without knowing that they've got even better stuff coming. 
I mean, they they, they don't um, uh, front load necessarily. Right. They're uh, just saying you're in good hands. Yes. Trust us. Remember, yeah. remember why you came to see a Johnny Toe film. This is why. Now that we've all established, you're you saw the right Johnny Toe. There's not two of us. Let's let's get to the movie. But there's but there's always a build with with him and and with Leone that as strong as their openers are, their openers are strong in retrospect when you look back after you've gone through the whole ride of the rest of the film and you're like, Oh man, that opener was great too. What the hell? This whole movie was terrific. Uh, and it, unlike say your, your, uh, Dracula 2000s and your 13 ghosts where there's a great opener and then perhaps you, uh, should uh, see what else is on cable. And, uh, and on that note, I think it's time to uh, get on our own plywood gimbal and see if we can be uh, conveyed over to our final segment in one, Smooth, smooth camera movement. It's time to gather once more in the shadowy confines of the conspiracy corner, and this time we're going to go back, back in time to a conspiracy corner that could just as easily find us in the history hut. Uh, we've discussed on a couple of occasions, sort of a, an, uh, in a glancing manner, the Anti-Masonic Party, uh, which I think has the distinction of being the first American political party. Uh, but Ken, uh, I thought it was about time that we actually told that story in full. So uh, Ken, where would you start if you're going to tell the whole story of the Anti-Masonic Party? Well, it isn't the first political party. The first political party essentially is Thomas Jefferson's Republican Party, which later became the Democratic Party, just to confuse people. But that was the first thing that had party presence in all the states. It was the first uh, thing that had party newspapers. Um, so the Thomas Jefferson establishes the political party in the United States. The Federalists were sort of the name for the people who didn't want Thomas Jefferson running things, which included eventually George Washington. So uh, uh, opposed to my just being nuts, why do some scholars refer to the anti-Masonic party as the first political party? Because it's the first party to have a party platform and it's the first party to have a nominating convention. Ah, there we go. And so those uh, seemed to be ineradicable parts of a party. You can't have a party without a party platform, say political scientists who've never actually ever been to a platform meeting. <laughs> Trust me, you could so easily have p uh, political parties with no party platform. But uh, that was part of the sort of generalized move toward social technology that happened in the 19th century in America and Britain and, and a lot of the, the Western world. Okay, so we started on a, a digression, which is what happens when it's very hot and you're uh, packing for Gen Con. So let's and start Masons. at the beginning of the <laughs> Story. At the beginning of the story, the beginning of the story is a fellow named William Morgan, and William Morgan lives in Batavia, New York, and uh, in the same fashion that other people have said, he said that he came back from summer vacation, and he said, oh, when I was in Canada, I became a Mason, and uh, the other Masons in New York said, oh, you did not. And, um, uh, no, totally. You just don't know that Masonic chapter. She's yeah. real pretty. Um, and so the, uh, the other Masons gave him the, the brush off and told him he was a goof and he, uh, got mad, which is a bad say thing to say to somebody in Canada or in a Canadian prison. Right. But th in this particular case, um, uh, this is in upstate New York, uh, in Batavia. And, uh, they said, well, you run, you, you run along and play with your imaginary friends. And he then threatened to publish a book that would blow the lid off uh, masonry and was going to be called 
illustrations of masonry and it was going to describe all their secret degree work and give away what their handshake was. And because this had only happened a dozen times before, these masons got all head up. And so they uh, set fire to his uh, publisher. And, and when was this? This is 1826. Uh, they set fire, not to his publisher, but his publisher's office. Um, and then they arrest uh, Morgan for non-payment of a loan and for stealing a necktie. And uh, this was a trumped-up charge. Uh, both of them were trumped-up charges. You would think if they were trumping up a charge, they the would necktie theft would not like have been the compelling item thing. on the it order. It was a bigger thing in upstate New York, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, be- and because the you know the judge and the sheriff and all the other sort of high-ranking people in town are Masons, they are like, "Ha Screw you!" And they toss him in jail in Canadigua. The publisher, who is now really invested in this because his house has been burned, um, uh, uh, pays off the, uh, the, the imaginary debt, uh, bailed him out. They get into a carriage and, uh, the carriage arrives in Fort Niagara, but not William Morgan. And so the story is that Morgan was nabbed from the carriage and drowned in the Niagara River and was never ever seen again. Uh, the other story that the Masons put about is, oh, he just left town because he realized that he was wrong and had never joined a Mason movement, and we're awesome. And, and he was ashamed of his necktie. And he was ashamed of his necktie theft. That's where he went, and he's hiding out in the Cayman Islands. But uh, the uh, sort of the, the the big scandal of of Masons murdering a guy uh, became sort of a a momentary cause celeb in New York, and the supporters of President John Quincy Adams who were looking at Andrew Jackson, who was turning Thomas Jefferson's Republican Party into a even broader-based populist Democratic Party, see, it wasn't a digression, um, <laughs> said, well, we need our own popular populist cause to get people to support this um, uh, scion of a former president, and we'll pretend to be populists and run out and, um, uh, and co-opt this anti-Masonic movement. And so it was basically pro-John Quincy Adams people established the anti-Masonic movement as a way to get into the popular anger in New York State that was, of course, because it's aimed at Masons, it's aimed at the elites. It's aimed at, you know, your judges, your bankers, all of your bourgeois upper class uh, Mason types. And that is Jackson's core audience is poor guys and farmers and and um, uh, people who want to take land from the Indians. And so... The anti-Masonic movement sort of co-opts Jackson's support in a lot of the North and New England, and that becomes the power base for President uh, Adams. And the result is that in order to uh, sort of establish to themselves that they're a real political party, they get together and have a big political convention in which they agree that uh, they are for uh, the tariff and they're for internal improvements. Again, coincidentally, the opposite of what Andrew Jackson wants, and... Indeed, their first uh, presidential candidate, William Wirt, was a former Mason. And so, obviously, that couldn't have been that big a deal for them. Uh, although I suspect uh, former Masons were... It was probably pretty hard to avoid them back when you were trying to nominate people in 1832. Right, and, he, and presumably he uh, could say that, oh, I, I was a Mason, I was led astray, but now I know their inner workings and can uh, tell you all about them. <laughs> well, in fact, at the uh, nominating convention that nominated him, his acceptance speech was a defense of Freemasonry. <laughs> <laughs> so most political parties wait perhaps a generation to sell out their founding ideals, but not the anti-Masons. It took them <laughs> the length of one convention to do it. Uh, so the uh, the anti-Masonic party then sort of becomes uh, a 
broad anti-Jacksonian popular party, uh, and by broad, I mean it elected the governor of Vermont, um, <laughs> but now, oh goodness, so many echoes of our modern day. Uh, and, but now the, um, uh, the anti-Masonic party has a national presence and becomes sort of part of the, uh, the, the discussion about whether or not Andrew Jackson gets to be president. And it's sort of a, it's, it's a third party, which means it goes nowhere, but it goes nowhere in a pretty influential direction and, winds up founding an awful lot of, um, uh, newspapers and providing an awful lot of, of, of other sort of, uh, what do I want to say? Shock troops for what will eventually become the Whig party, uh, which is the party of people who disagree with Andrew Jackson, basically. Now, of course, that's the, um, the real history, the veil out as it were, but, uh, what's going on behind the scenes in magical occult America that, uh, explains this, uh, surface appearance of the anti-Masonic party. Well, the thing about um, the anti-Masonic party is that it comes like so many wonderful American crazinesses out of the burned over district, out of that upstate New York thing. So the anti-Masonic party, I suspect is the uh, scrim over the secret core of people who are going around and stopping John Murray Spear from building electrical Jesus. And they're, uh, they're, they're chasing, um, Joseph Smith out of, um, uh, Kimura with his magical angel seeing goggles. And they're basically just trying to keep the lid on all the, uh, nonsense that's pouring up out of the burned over district. They're, uh, getting to the Fox sisters and, uh, exercising their spirits without telling them so that they have to fall back on charlatanry. Uh, they're basically, not the anti-Masonic, they're the anti-Masonic party, but underneath it, they're the anti-occult uh, sleepers. They're the guys that go in and... They're the and anti-magic party. They're the anti-magic party. They're the anti-magic masons, if you will. And so they're they're going around putting the kibosh on all of these crazy magical uh, uh, boilovers that come up out of the burned over district. That is what I suspect they're up to. Also, um, uh, Millard Fillmore, uh, future president, uh, began as an anti-Masonic... Uh, assemblyman in New York state. So there you go. Uh, and William H. Seward, who becomes the, uh, 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 secretary of state under Lincoln is an anti-Mason, uh, in the, when he's in the state Senate. So obviously these guys have got, uh, tendrils, uh, reaching into the very highest levels of power. Uh, when Fillmore becomes president, that's probably when the anti-magical, uh, core, uh, gets it sort of wire into the secret service or into the cabinet somewhere. And that's where the, the U.S. government's ongoing anti-magical efforts date from. Right. And so that's why uh, spiritualism sort of trickled away and uh, uh, after reaching its height in the uh, 19th century. And so uh, are they the uh, the good guys in our campaign or are they the ambiguous uh, patrons that you work for before you discover that they're going too far and have to break from them? What? Uh, how do the player characters... Uh, relate to the anti-masonic party i think that the i think that it you know obviously you can play them as the good guys you can play them as the as the bad guy as the man with his foot on your magic neck um but i think that i like them if you play them sort of like you'd play say the fbi or the cia right they are genuinely stopping some genuinely bad people 
but they're not really paying attention to your hilarious notion of civil rights or your hilarious notion of fair procedure or your hilarious notion of not, you know, beating people with a phone book. And they're uh, not drawing distinctions between uh, positive magic and negative magic. They're just getting rid of everything. Right. They're just, they know that all magic causes problems eventually. Even good magicians will tell you, oh, magic comes at a great cost. Um, and so... Their notion is, you know what, as long as internal combustion and capitalism work, let's just stick to that and not do any magic, all right? And so they are stopping, you know, necromancers and, and Cthulhu's and all manner of badnesses, but they're also maybe leaning on your on your Wicca coven that's doing un-FDA-approved homeopathic healing or whatever. And so you, you need something like them, even if the individual NPCs you meet are kind of uh, uh, gray or even bad news. And then you can have uh, guys who are within them who are secretly, of course, uh, uh, have been subverted by that which they attempt to contain. And you can tell your sort of magical Aldrich Ames story or your magical um, uh, Colonel Kurt story of the guy who is so dedicated to the cause that he goes all the way over into the other side of it. That's more of a Robert Hansen than an Alder James. Alder James is just bribed by the devil. So uh, I guess initially for doing this campaign where you're uh, working with them and then over the course of it, you start to question uh, the extremity of their methods. So what's the uh, opening salvo, the first session in an anti-Masonic party campaign? Well, I think that you have to, I mean, we're going to go back to your... Um, uh, your burned over district. And I think the opening salvo, when we're talking about our opening scene, it should be a good set piece where you're working with them against a real threat and you're doing it in an exciting thing. So, uh, if you remember the electrical Jesus, uh, in John Murray Spears barn was, was taken apart by area boys. We, we had established that in our previous discussion of John Murray Spear. In fact, it was not area boys. It was your player characters who were given the tip that the electrical Jesus is going to come to life and start magicking the, the crap out of uh, New England. And so, so it begins you with an action sequence. It begins with an action the sequence. Giant electrical Jesus. And you, you're going after this giant mechanical electrical Jesus and you're fighting it. And you know, the player characters, that the reason you won is because the anti-Masonic party has provided you with these special magical devices or this rote or this uh, key uh, uh, word of mundanity that, that knocks stuff down or whatever it is. And so you immediately provide mechanical evidence to the players that A, the anti-Masonic party is badass. B, this is a genuine threat. This is an electrical Jesus. This is not, you know, uh, there's no good side to this. It's a giant robot Jesus that's going to shoot lightning at people. And you've also established that you know, once they think about it, oh, what was given can be taken away and what was given can be turned against us. And that is sort of the, the, the very much the baseline that they don't think about. But as they go for more and more missions, maybe then they sort of cavil at the one where you've got to go chase the Mormons out of town because they're um, uh, talking to unapproved angels. And it's like, I don't know that that's so bad. They're just talking to angels. They're not really doing anything. Well, trust us. Uh, upstairs says we can't have it. Yeah, so we've got a reading on those angels. Doesn't, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And, you know, or whatever, you know, maybe you're going after some, uh, some, uh, Iroquois that are practicing, uh, the, some sort of magic in their lodge. And it's like, nope, they can't be practicing magic on you on, uh, federal soil. You go and you, you bust up that, uh, medicine man and, and his, uh, crew. And it's like, I don't think I should bust up the medicine man and his crew. That seems very mean. And, and that can be your sort of notions that things are not as they seem. Or that uh, the anti-Masons are exactly what they seem. They're just not as willing to see gray areas as you, the player characters, are. Right. And so gradually you start to realize that America needs magic. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you get rid of all magic in America, well, 
what about England and France and yeah. all these other places? It's in Haiti. There's well, a, there's a jerk countries <laughs> here. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, uh, you know that you've got uh, your uh, international world powers will still have magic, and so you've got to uh, you've uh, got to stay armed. Yes, and you've got to prevent the uh, anti-magic party from unilaterally disarming you. And of course, the the big turn comes when you. Uh, stumble on something that George Washington did, some great magical working that he did to free us from Britain. It's like, oh, right. George Washington was a Mason. He was the Grand Master Mason of America. How could we have been so stupid as to turn against George Washington? Oh, who can we find to fix this? Let's dig up Ichabod Crane and his suspended animation chamber. Exactly. Um, or whatever. And so you're and so you have that moment in all the spy movies where our character reestablishes his American patriotism, even though he's killing an awful lot of CIA agents. So that it's like, I'm not killing the CIA agents because I'm Al-Qaeda. I'm killing the CIA agents because I'm America. Because they're Treadstone. Because they're Treadstone. And so you establish that moment. And because you're doing it as an anti-Masonic party, you can establish it better than most people can because you can have a mystical vision of George Washington, or you can stumble on some, you know, great work of his that can't be destroyed or can't be harmed, uh, by these, uh, by, by the, by the successors. And maybe that's, they're secretly jealous and mad that uh, George Washington's magic can't be taken down. And, uh, they believe that they are the equal of George Washington, which is of course foolishness. And, uh, so that will, give you a really nice thematic thing to bounce off of. Uh, and then it can wind up in the civil war and that can be sort of the end of your campaign. And you can either end it on a good note where, um, uh, you know, a sewer doesn't become president, but he is secretary of state. So Lincoln is in good hands or it's the bad note where, Oh my God, everything we've done has just destroyed the magical protections of America. Now there's a civil war going on. How stupid of us type stuff. Well, if only it was the day before Gen Con. If only. Uh, you, you could present this to Simon as a, a gumshoe idea as as part of our policy of giving him way too many tantalizing things to choose between. But I don't I don't know how that could possibly no, happen. Sadly, because, it's it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, hmm. We shall just have to hope for a groundswell. Some sort of groundswell. Some sort of groundswell. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to mention it at a panel. That'll, that'll make it happen. That, that's that, that's yeah, what well, for DreamHounds. Well, what, what, what Simon enjoys is when we mention impracticable, unpublishable ideas at panels and, and uh, turn and it and turn them. nominated for any award. Exactly. Uh, well, I, I think on, on that note uh, of uh, foreshadowing of, of the future... And self-aggrandizement. <laughs> and self Well, the self-aggrandizement is throughout the entire podcast. But, yes. uh, specifically, future imagined self-aggrandizement uh, is, uh, is another um, hat full of fish entirely. So I think it's time to declare this pre-Gen Con Eve podcast at an end. And everybody enjoy listening to it after Gen Con. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Small Folk. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Bedeck our leg greaves with ornament by hitting the donate button at KennyRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Stand amongst such splendidly attired benefactors as Jeremy French. And that patron of patrons, Edward Hirsch. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or Black Obelisk by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>